There are two kinds of people in the insurance industry. Those who are captive and those who are free. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast. Captivity can go far beyond the companies you represent. It starts between your ears and its impact is felt in every corner of your business. We're all about helping agency principals and sales professionals reach your maximum potential and flex your freedom. If your goals are big enough, you're going to have to get uncomfortable to be able to reach them. Our team at RiskWell is living this out every single day. This show is where I share our successes, our failures, and everything I learn along the way. We deliver relevant, tactical, and actionable content from industry peers, innovative partners, and a variety of leaders from other business verticals. We're not holding anything back. There's no upsell, no guru pitch, and no fluff. It's time to unshackle yourself from captivity and make your freedom jump with the Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. Hey, Freedom Jumpers, welcome back to another episode of the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. This is a great episode if you are into scaling and doing wild and crazy awesome things. Uh, my guest for this episode is Mr. Jacob Neighbors from Hermiston, Oregon. He is uh, the founder and president of the Simmons Agency. Uh, he has a, a really cool story uh, from visiting his website and checking out his socials. Jacob has got it going on. He is, he is a much bigger deal in the insurance game that I have achieved at this point in my career. So I'm probably going to pick up some great stuff along with a lot of you. So Jacob Neighbors, thanks for joining us, man. Really appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. Yeah, bro. It's great to be here. Uh, great to meet you. And yeah, looking forward to the conversation, man. Thanks for having me on. I love starting off these conversations really just with the same question every single time. Give us your backstory. Uh, what, what's your experience been leading up to this point in uh, the insurance world? How did you get here? Are you second generation? Did you come in by accident like I did by accident? <laughs> uh, catch us up on whatever backstory you want, and then we'll just chop it up and get after it. Sure. So... Uh, I came to the agency, I started here full-time when I was 19. Um, my father-in-law actually started the business in 1974. Um, I was high school sweethearts with my wife and had a great relationship with my father-in-law. And so um, he recruited me into the business. And uh, my brother-in-law, Justin, and I, um, Justin Simmons, we ended up taking the business over. Uh, when I was about 28, um, we bought... The business from my father-in-law. We at the time it was about three million in revenue. Uh, we scaled it up to about ten million in revenue. Uh, my primary practice in the business was uh, commercial production. Uh, I worked specifically uh, selling church insurance, actually. So I uh, developed a book of about twelve hundred church customers in Oregon and Washington, mm. and became a practice leader in that segment. And uh, scaled the business, man. Uh, eventually, we started a network called Simmons Partner Network to you know, offer kind of other people to get into the, to, into the industry out of kind of their captive situation. And um, that was pretty successful. Uh, ultimately, my brother-in-law actually was diagnosed with soft tissue sarcoma in late 2019. He ended up passing away uh, in late 2020. And so that led us to the path to join High Street Insurance Partners. And um, I think I was number 20 agency, the 20th agency to join High Street. And uh, now I run a platform 
agency for High Street uh, out here in the West. So done a little bit of everything over my tenure and I think this is my 18th year in the business and slaving away and trying to grow and uh, be successful. You know, you you passed over it in just a couple of sentences there in what you said, uh, but you you casually mentioned adding $7 million in annual revenue uh, to the agency and the vast majority of retail agents never get to $7 million, no matter how long they've been playing the game. Uh, in, in annual revenue. Uh, before we jump into to other questions like how do you start a network and what has your journey been like, you know, being acquired uh, and becoming part of a larger organization? There, I mean, that little intro, and I love how this goes because I didn't know any of those things. You and I have never spoken face to face before, but your intro just set the stage for the entire rest of the interview. Like, I don't even have to have any additional questions. I just have follow-ups on what you just said. That's the whole interview right there. I love it. I'm going to ask one question about uh, what are you talking about at Innovation in Nashville and let you unpack some of that because uh, the beauty of this format of communication is, yeah, as you and I record this in September of 22, Innovation is in the future and we don't know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but this episode lives in perpetuity. So people could be hearing this a couple of years from now if they're going into our back catalog. So we got to make sure we deliver real meaningful value for folks that, for whatever reason, can't be there to hear you in person. I don't mind giving you a, a little bit of props because I saw what you're talking about. And I'm thinking, oh, crud, I know where I have to be. I don't, I don't care what else is going on at that moment. I got to hear this guy talk. Uh, we'll let you unpack that in a little bit, but I'm going to reel it back to what you said early in your 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 intro. You came into an existing family agency, and you didn't know any better at the time. You're only 19 years old. Uh, you probably didn't have any idea how much of a sweetheart deal you were walking into. Um, what was that like taking an existing agency and moving into a position of authority over the course of years, I'm sure? What was your experience like managing family and business in the complicated interactions that I'm sure happened there along the way? Well, I got to say, it was a real blessing to be an in-law, but we have a great family relationship. We all got along really well. I know that you hear some of the nightmare stories, but you know that really wasn't us. We, Gosh, I mean, we, we just had a lot of fun together. And um, my father-in-law was like super generous and very empowering to me and some of my young, crazy ideas. Like he just gave me open field running to try a bunch of different stuff and fail. And so it was, for me, it was a great experience. I love family business. I can't recommend it enough to people. Um, it, if you do have a, a strained family dynamic, it may not be right for you. But um, for us, it was, um, it was incredible. After my brother-in-law passed away, um, I just look back on that time as like, it was just such an incredible time in my life and, and in our family's journey. And um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wish, I mean, I wish he was still here. I wish we were still doing it. We wouldn't have ever given it up. Mm. Man, I, I can only imagine. I, I've never had someone in my immediate family, uh, you know, pass away prematurely like that. Um, I can imagine that that caused some course corrections to feel like they were necessary. So the, wow, that's a heavy subject for sure. So I, I I'm glad to hear that your, your family weathered the storm and, and moved forward. Uh, in a in a healthy and beneficial way, you know. You you mentioned significant growth. 
Uh, and I don't want to gloss over that because I imagine that was probably several years of your life that you encapsulated in just two sentences. Um, but what it, what does it look like for you to step into a, a, a long tenured, successful agency already at three million in revenue? That's not a small number. Uh, you don't even get to three million in revenue without doing a lot of things really well. So, what was the process like for you, helping guide an already successful organization to significantly higher scale? Because you, know, you probably heard the book, "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." Definitely. What was that like for you? You know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we got to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Like as you mentioned, it's just not—it's not easy to build an insurance practice to that size. Uh, we were multi-location as well. We still are, obviously. Um, but um, like I said, we got to stand on the shoulders of giants and take everything that they did and all the best practices that they had developed and then scale them out. Uh, Justin and I really spent our time recruiting, training, and developing new producers uh, and trying to empower them to become successful in the industry and take the things that um, this generation of senior producers, um, the things that they had built and the, you know, the systems and processes and techniques um, and kind of deploy those to that next generation. So we were young guys and we got to kind of help other folks, other people our age um, at the time become successful as well. So it was really rewarding. Um, and really, frankly, you know, the majority of our time was spent recruiting and developing and teaching people just the blocking and tackling basics of selling. Hmm. So you go from three when you had begun and then you start recruiting these people and opening new physical locations. Talk to me about some of the nuts and bolts there. You know, when you're at three, you know, where are you at location-wise, staff, team member-wise? And when you're at 10, how had that scaled? Because, you know, from three to 10, the structural concerns, you know, from uh, internally, human capital and just training and really boring stuff like yeah. regulatory compliance and yeah. making sure that licensing and other things are done correctly. You know, administrative things like, you know, compensation and payroll and making sure that your I's are crossed and T's are, or T's are crossed and I's are dotted with your management system, your data integrity, not even talking about operations and client uh, life cycle and sales and marketing and, and the actual running of the daily operations of the insurance agency. There's a lot of moving parts that happen yeah. between 3 million and 10 million. Yeah. Can you talk about that for a little bit, like structurally, infrastructure wise, what was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we took a two prong approach. Well, I guess three. Um, the first one was organic production through recruiting, training, developing new producers. I would say the second prong approach was uh, the partner network. So recruiting people that would come in and be pseudo entrepreneurialistic uh, standalone businesses alongside our business using our selling agreements uh, to you know, move out of the captive channel and into the independent channel. And then the third approach was uh, agency acquisitions. Um, I would say the most lucrative for us was agency acquisitions. It allowed us to garner like more quality talent and um, obviously grow uh, probably more effectively than anything else. Um, everything's good. You have to do all three. I don't think you can do just one. Um, as far as the systems and infrastructure goes, I would say that's probably, that was my expertise. So um, I'm more of the back of house guy. Uh, we focused on building out um, Easy Links was the management system that, that we chose to convert to. We were on AMS 360 at the time, but we just didn't feel like it was going to meet our needs for the business that we were trying to grow then. Um, at the time, I think we were one of the first uh, folks to adopt their management, actual management system. 
Uh, we help them build out um, the agency accounting functions uh, as well as the commercial workflows. Um, I shouldn't even say that because the commercial workflows and EaseLinks still kind of stink. I, well, hopefully we can edit that out or whatever. But um, they're still no, being developed. It's just your opinion. No worries. Um, but I happen uh, to share that opinion. That's why we <laughs> couldn't go to EasyLinks because we're heavy on commercial. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, I think it's a great company uh, for scaling for scaling purse lines. But yeah, so we work with their development team and um, built uh, what we felt was a system that was going to meet our needs and, and help us scale and grow. And I would say that was really a big part of what empowered us to be able to take that three prong approach and be successful at it and, and grow the business and keep the business. And um, we also obviously had to build out, you know, use at the time, like all these new pieces of technology that were coming out, we had to kind of wade through the crap and figure out what was actually going to work for us and, and help and empower the business. So um, there was a lot there. Uh, and I would say, you know, to get from there to 10, was a was a complete overhaul of the infrastructure, and I would say you know now we're today we're closer to north of fifteen, and we're doing more infrastructure rebuilds in order to empower us to get to that next level. So it's continuing to you know just adapt and be nimble for what the business needs, not necessarily for you know what my opinion is or what software I like. Um, you know we are continuing to just reinvent the business all the time and continue to grow. So, um, I, I, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you want to get any nuts and bolts on exactly what we did there, but um, we changed over you a lot. You can be as tactical as you want, man. We don't have to stay high level. We yeah. don't have to stay strategic. If there's anything super tactical that you wanted to get into, by all means, you know, some of our uh, listening audience uh, may not be able to take that and run with it, but a lot of folks might. If you want to share any specific tips sure. on exactly what you uh, did to help prime the pump, so to speak. Yeah. So I think we took like a five prong approach to administration. We carved off admin and just said, look, we have to have this group of services that empower the sale and service of insurance. So, you know, we all have producers, we all have staff and we can stratify those in, in a lot of different ways, but those are the core of the business. And then, you know, we have kind of a support organization in administration that that we built out to empower those people to do their job well. And so that it consisted of uh, finance and accounting team, uh, a marketing team, uh, an IT team, licensing and compliance team, um, and uh, I'm forgetting one more. Oh, crap. Uh, anyway, I'll remember it in a second. But essentially, it was this five-prong approach to supporting the business um, and giving the folks the things that they needed in order to be successful without having to get them caught in the minutia of things that distract them from customers, um, either gating new customers or servicing the existing customers that we had. You know, for somebody who is early stage, a lot of our uh, our Freedom Jumper audience is still in the captive world. Uh, a lot of them are early stage uh, or smaller shops. Uh, what I consider to be a smaller shop is you know, anybody with ten or fewer uh, employees. Revenue banding is another way of you know breaking down small, medium, large, whatever. Right. Um, by that definition, Riskwell is still a small shop because we only have nine people, uh, including myself. If you count our VAs, we have 11, but I don't really count them from a headcount perspective because right. we don't, we're not responsible for all the other things that go along with having actual payroll on the books. Uh, but those functions that you just mentioned for a smaller office are going to simply be tasks that the executive is responsible for right. or that there's a, you know, a right-hand person, maybe a controller type of role has been uh, hired. 
or someone's been promoted into an operations manager like we have here at risk. Well, Addy got promoted and three of the four things that you just mentioned are uh, under Addy's responsibility now as our quote unquote operations manager, licensing and compliance and HR and uh, back office type of things, you know, accounting and finances under her. That doesn't necessarily start as a team. Sometimes it starts as an individual or starts as, hey, the executive recognizes these things have to happen. So I'm going to put time and energy into codifying exactly how they should happen so that you're ready to delegate as soon as you know an available team member becomes uh you know yeah. in place there is that is that a fair statement kind of a the really early stages of what you just described yeah so i guess you know my in my experience and this is just my experience take it for, for what it's worth but i think that first 2 million of revenue um, it's really important for the agency owner to be the production leader and be recruiting other production leaders along the way and then you at night, you know, you stay up and, you know, you open the mail at your kitchen table and, you know, you do your finances after after hours and everything. And the, the hope being that you can build enough infrastructure underneath you that you can ultimately get out of selling. I think that was the f- kind of the first thing that my father-in-law, you know, kind of instilled in me was like, if you're going to work, you can either work in the business, you can work on the business. As the owner, as the leader, you really got to get to a place where you're working on the business in a, on a regular and consistent basis. And so... At that two million or so mark, it really feels like that's the place where you can get there and get out of the day-to-day grind of uh, you know working in the business, and then from there, you know, it's just continuing to recruit, train, develop talent, and scale out um, some of those central services that you know you as the agency principal oftentimes have to provide to your staff. So, um, you know, as a lot of times as your income could potentially grow, right? You're you're shedding that money off and hiring somebody to handle those tasks, to make your life easier. Cause you know, you can't, you can't do it all. So, um, in my mind, it's that, that, that $2 million revenue hump is the first major hump to get over and getting outside and getting out of selling is, is really the kind of, you know, the most tactical way to move your business to the next level. Yeah. I love everything you said there. And I, I'm in the middle of living that out myself. You know, we, we hired a full-time CSR for the first uh, our first ever full-time commercial CSR, uh, and she starts on the 15th of this month, just about a week, actually exactly a week from today, uh, she starts. And we raised the ceiling, so to speak. Uh, Jen on, on my team is responsible for the smaller commercial accounts. Up to this point, it's been 2500 in revenue and under uh, she was responsible for, and I was taking everything north of that. Well, now we gave her full-time CSR. It's like, all right, Jen, your ceiling just got bumped to 5,000. Uh, everything less than 5,000 in account revenue uh, you're going to handle, and I will take care of the big stuff and kind of inching my way out. So that number gets bigger and bigger, you know, a year from now, hopefully that's 10,000 yep. in revenue on an account basis. And then, you know, before two years from now it gets here, hopefully I'm done with production entirely yep. and just acting as a rainmaker. So Man, I'm living out exactly what you just said. I'm just several years behind you in the curve of things. So that's it's fascinating to hear you describe literally exactly what Riskwell is doing right now, like to a T. And you're sitting here saying, well, this is what I think is good. I'm like, okay, cool. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm in the right track then because you just said what we're doing. Okay. It worked for me. I, you know, I can't here. promise it's going to work for everybody, but it worked for me. And, you know, the rising tide raises all ships, right? Like being part of an organization mm -hmm. that's growing and empowering your staff to earn more money and write bigger accounts. And um, I think that's the most rewarding part of being the captain of a growing ship is the ability to kind of, you know, yeah. you bring these people on and, um, you know, seeing the fulfillment of the growing business that empowers their life to get better is just, um, it's an incredible feeling. Isn't it great, man? Giving people raises and seeing them smile when great things happen. And, you know, when they get to buy a car or buy a house or whatever, it's like, that happened because of the work that you did here. Yep. Like me as your employer, I had a small part in you getting to do that in your life. Like that just feels really good, man. That, totally agree. That's, that's awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot here just a little bit and advance down your, your story a little bit. A, a, a time came in your journey where you and your, your, your family members that were involved in the agency decided, you know what? I think it makes sense for us to consider, uh, being acquired, you know, no longer sure. doing the acquisition. Hey, you know what? The time has come we're going to consider the right move to be acquired and become part of a larger organization. Talk about that for a little bit. How does, how does one come to the conclusion that being acquired may not be a bad thing? Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people, myself, my former self included, I've since you know, started to unpack that, you know, at some point it might make sense to join a larger organization. You know, as of even just a few months ago, I would have told you absolutely not. I'll never sell. Yeah. And then I started seeing, well, wait a second, you know, pro forma EBITDA is what they use as the basis for these deals, not your actual EBITDA. That's right. And here's what you're looking at. If you were to sell, there's an EBITDA range with an earnout. It's usually between two and five years, depending on how your deal is structured. And oh, by the way, you're looking at a very significant multiple. You know, right now, depending on who buys you, you're between 10 and 15 times your pro forma EBITDA as a general ballpark. And holy crap, man, that's a lot of money. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you are in the life cycle of things. So the money side of things, you don't have to explain any of that. I, I completely appreciate yeah. if you if you have a good agency and you're running a, a good shop, you're going to get paid. But there's yeah. an ego thing that I, for the longest time I had a hard time you know, getting over of if I sell, it's like I'm giving up, right. like I'm throwing in the towel or something. Yeah. Uh, I, what, what's your take on all that? I totally agree with you. And like, I had the same mentality, you know, especially in a family business or a small business, but I think that's a little narrow-minded or well, maybe short-sighted is probably the best way to describe it. Because as every business grows and becomes successful, there are certain, certain things that happen along the life cycle of a business that continue to empower its growth. And so, you know, my story coming into high street, I, you know, we didn't feel like we were being acquired. We were very successful. We were growing at a 20% Kager for the last three years. Our five, our five-year average was 16%. And so it wasn't, it wasn't an issue of being unsuccessful or needing money. It was more about the recapitalization restructure of the business to help us get to the next level. Um, a lot of these deals, man, these guys don't want you to go anywhere. You know, we're we're the guys that know what to do and, and how to grow the insurance business. There's capital available to empower your business, but it's not to get you out of the way. It's to, to help take you to the next level. And that was, that was my story, right? So I was really short-sighted thinking, you know, oh, you know, it'll change our business or they'll, you know, these soulless private equity guys, you know, they don't, they don't understand who we are, or what we're bringing to the table. And I think that was just, 
Um, that was just my ignorance at the time. And so, you know, it was my brother-in-law's disease that really forced us into kind of exploring those options. And, um, you know, my story with high street is just, I, 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 it was perfect timing. It was God's timing for us. Um, but you know, it's really empowered our growth in a, in a way that probably would have never been possible otherwise. And, um, I would say the financial aspects of it. Yeah. There, you know, there's the upfront money. Your business is worth what it's worth. Just like your house is worth what it's worth. It's really hard to access that capital without some sort of transaction event uh, that's available. So, you know, you can bring additional partners into the mix to help you grow. And that's usually what most guys do. They look for a great producer to come on board or whatever. And we just decided that we were going to look for a private equity partner to bring us into kind of the financial aspects that uh, maybe we, you know, weren't considering in the past. So it's been a great journey for us. And, you know, we really love being a part of a team. And we just figured if we're all doing the same thing, how do we do it together rather than by ourselves? And what we realized was like, it really is just an ego thing, right? Like if, if you can get to the point where you can drop some of the, you know, ego piece of it uh, and give that up for maybe some of these other, you know, benefits that are are very tangible and very real, especially in the financial realm, um, it can be a really great experience. You know, it, but but it also has to be the right time, right? And it's got to be the right time for your business and its life cycle. And uh, nobody can tell you when that time is right, but when it is, it's a it's a pretty incredible experience. You know, what I was having this conversation this morning uh, with a, a new colleague of mine. We're just talking shop, and you know, they were acquired about three years ago by uh, a, a top five uh, national uh, broker that does a lot of acquisitions. Um, I'm not going to name names, but we all know who they are. And they were talking about the conversation of when to allow yourself to be acquired, when to bring in that conversation. Uh, It really has the deal of what's the inflection point. There's either something that happens in your life, like in your case, the the diagnosis and eventual uh, passing of your brother-in-law that triggers that conversation, or if you're really going to maximize your your revenue in the deal, you have to sell when you're at that inflection point in your growth, either where you're starting to see growth level off or you're starting to see a little bit of a downturn and you want to capture as much value before your business declines in some way. Maybe it's staffing, maybe it's tech, maybe it's just good old fashioned cash flow. There's any number of reasons, right? but making that sale happen at just the right time in your growth curve. You know, if you're, you know, if you're 16% for as long as you guys have been around is phenomenal growth. That's absolutely fantastic for uh, the tenure that your agency was to still be growing at 16%. That's flabbergasting, honestly. Uh, we RiskWell is growing year to date. We're at 61%, but we're only in our third year. Yeah. So 61% in year three. Okay, that's cool. Good job. You're above average, but it's really nothing special. You know, if we're 10 years from now and we're growing at almost 20%, holy crap, man, that's fantastic growth. So bravo to you for that, for starters. And would you agree that that's kind of, unless you have some life event, you really, if you're going to have that conversation of, hey, maybe we allow someone to buy us, it has to be at that inflection point where you're either trying to capture the peak of your growth 
or you're starting to see things taper off or even, you know, turn down a little bit. What, yeah. what do you think about that? No, I think you're right. I think there's life events that drive that. Um, obviously, there's business events that drive that. You're never going to maximize the value of your business if it's in decline and you try and do a deal, right? Or if you're trying to exit. I tell guys all the time, like, you don't want to wait until you're ready to retire to do a deal. These guys want you around, right? So you got to be at least, you got to at least stick it out for three to five years um, if you're going to maximize its value. But I would also say that, like, there's this other element. Um, that often gets glossed over. Like if you bring something of value to the table for one of these major players, it's not you're getting acquired. You're getting recruited onto the team, right? So everybody wants to be drafted to the Yankees, but not everybody qualifies to be a Yankee. And so, yeah, you know, you can go to just about anybody and they're going to do a deal and they're going to get you some money. And, you know, that's, that's fine. But, um, if you can bring something special to the table in either a market segment as a market segment leader or like a specialty or something that maybe a, a carrier is looking for, you know, you might have a, uh, one of these big shops that's really strong in commercial lines and you're an expert in purse lines, like there's upward mobility and deeper opportunity in those instances I, than I think most people realize in the segment right now. Like there's a lot of money flowing into our channel and we have, I would say, we have more money than we have talent today. And that's part of what's driving, yeah. you know, I think the, the valuations that you're seeing, including the excess liquidity, obviously. But, um, you know, the talented the, folks. The way that it was explained to me this morning, I thought was very interesting because I asked the question. I was just you know, talking to, to my, my colleague who's like, help me understand basic economics. How in the world does it make sense for these groups? I can get it if, you know, if somebody is paying, you know, a smaller multiple and they're going to, you know, hope and pray that somebody sticks around and they get their money's worth, you know, in the end of the deal. He's like, James, you're thinking in Main Street terms. These folks, these hedge funds and, and private equity firms, they're thinking in Wall Street terms. Yep. Uh, you, you ever seen one of the, the best indicators of how, how well a stock is performing? It was like, well, the P.E. ratio, price to earnings. It was like, well, yeah, what do you think a good P.E. ratio is of any one of these companies? I have no idea. I'm not a I'm not a financial guy to that degree. He's like, you know, you're you're probably somewhere, you know, 15 to 25 uh, PE multiple. It's like every dollar of price is worth 20, you know, 15, 20, 25 dollars of you know stock valuation. It's like, wait a second. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. So if they're right. going off of of a multiple of uh, earnings number okay well now these crazy ebitda multiples start to make sense because i'm sitting here thinking is this some kind of a con is this a shell game like what's going on here how are these people getting such absurd ebitda multiples that even you know three or four years ago you know five six seven eight times of pro forma ebitda ends up being a really good number and now it's double that yeah sometimes more than double that when you factor in the sum of the earnout and all the bonuses and everything that to me, that what you just described as your journey is like, wow, you know, a lot of people need to think of this as part of their succession planning of part of what do you do when you get to a certain point and you either don't know how to proceed or you're capped out and you don't want to keep working 60 hours a week forever. You ask for some help or your analogy is fantastic, you know, getting recruited to the Yankees. You know, some of these groups, you know, whether it's, you know, Aon or Marsh or Lockton or, or, um, 
uh, Gallagher or Acrisher or whatever, um, these folks have nearly unlimited resources. Yeah. And even the smaller ones, you know, you get into uh, like Higginbotham is a regional player. And, you know, there's like 30 or 35 that I had on a list that was handed to me. It was like, these are the folks that are buying small retail agencies. Yeah. And there's like 35 names on this spreadsheet. And, you know, on the left hand side, it's the really, really big boys, the marshes and, you know, Aon and whatnot. And as you go to the right on the paper, it's smaller and more regional players where you generally have more control Definitely. after you get acquired. Definitely. And it's like, that's kind of the sweet spot, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to get acquired, you want to still have your, the soul of your company needs to survive, right? I mean, I think it, everybody's situation is different. And, you know, I think that was our consideration. That's why we chose to work with High Street. It was a smaller player at the time. And we felt like we could grow with them and we could grow together. Um, other people, you know, like they're just looking for systems and processes and the beast has gotten away from them. And maybe they need Hub to come in and just, you know, control what systems are using and workflows and pay scales. And they just want it, you know, they want someone to come in and just fix it, right? Um, the bigger yeah. the agency gets, sometimes the more out of control it gets. And so um, everybody's situation is a little bit different. That's what we looked for is we wanted to, I'm, dude, I'm 38 years old. I want to be here for a while. So I wanted people that I could yeah. grow with and work with and that we could build something meaningful together. Um, and so I think that, that that should be a consideration. And not everybody works out, right? Like you might think you're going to the, the right team for you and it might not work out. And I think that sometimes you hear those stories and they kind of turn people off and they make us all scared. but um, I think there's, if you start asking around, there's so many stories of guys that have, have gotten on these teams and are just doing incredible things and candidly growing their net worth in, in ways that you could have never done before. And it's just, uh, it's, it can be a lot of fun if you do it right. And to, to your point though, these guys do the math different, man. Like I, I was an owner operator, family business. Like I've looked at the finances up, down and sideways every which way. And, um, it was a real eye opener when I started to understand the methodologies that they use, how these things are being valued. The best thing I can say is just like, you know, go look at Brown and Brown. They're a publicly traded company, full transparency on all of their financials. And you can kind of compare yourself to them on expense ratios and whatnot, and really start to understand the value drivers behind, um, you know, these multiples that people are paying as well as scale. Right. So, also have to be committed to a growing business that is of meaningful size and has a track record of success. Um, that's kind of like, you know, it's like the back of your baseball card, right? Like this is your finances are the score that's being kept on your performance. And that's what these guys recruit to. It's full transparency. I mean, you're showing them the good, bad, and the ugly. And if you run in a tight shop over a long period of time, you command a lot of uh, unique opportunities in the marketplace and you can do some really cool stuff. Yeah, it's amazing to me how much my perspective has shifted uh, from, you know, even six months ago of being absolutely not 100%, I'm not selling until I'm done. Like I'll sell when I, if the kids, uh, I have, we have two kids, five and three. And, you know, if they, uh, decide, you know what, this really isn't for me. I'm not interested in jumping into the family business. At that point, if both of them say, hey, no, I'm not really into that. I don't want to do that for my career. Okay, cool. At that point, I might look for an exit. Because this, I mean, I still think of this as, you know, gift wrapping them an amazing career if it, if they want to. I'm never going to be the dad who puts pressure on them. 
I'm the but still, it's like if if you want to, it's it's here. I've spent 15 years building this. I'm the direct beneficiary of that, and I cannot understate how meaningful that was in my life and my brother-in-law's life and our family's life. That my father-in-law did that for us, and um, dude, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him and all the things that he did and gift wrapped for us. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. I and it's also really cool in our industry, like. It's one of the few industries where you see this consistently with this multi-generational transfer of the business. And it's just such a cool dynamic. And like, I'm really passionate about family business. I think we need more, you know, content and support for family businesses, especially in our industry. Um, it's something most people don't talk about. Like it doesn't get a lot of airtime. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of gritty family business. And, um, but there's so much of it out there in our industry and it's provided so much opportunity to so many that it can't be understated. You know, if you can do it, it's, it transforms your family generational, the generational line of your entire family. Man, I, I feel really strongly about that. So, you know, it's one of those things where we've got to, to figure out what ends up being the best. Now you, you get to have a generational play of a different variety because uh, your, your company sold to high street and you're now participating in the bigger game. Uh, where you you get to win with the upside of the company, uh, you know when High Street wins, you win yep. proportional to whatever your you know stake is in the larger company. Is the formation of these things is just absolutely fascinating. It's like you take uh, you know all of the really really big ones, you know Aon and Marsh and Brown and Brown are you know publicly traded companies, but the really big smaller ones. Um, Acrisure touts themselves as the largest privately held broker on the planet. It is. Yeah. But it's like everybody that Acrisure acquires, they own a small piece of the company, like Acrisure, like the overall thing. Yep. You know, and I don't, you know, I haven't had conversations with a lot of these players. I don't know anything about Baldwin or Higginbotham or, yeah. you know, insert here. They're all basically the same. When you get bought, you own a small piece of a very large company and your destiny of sorts is tied to theirs. Yeah. So, so I, you win when they win. I tell people this, right? Like I can own a hundred percent of Jake's computers or I can own 1% of Microsoft. And that's, it's as simple as that. If you're more geared towards being an owner operator and doing your stuff and, and winning on your own, like there's so many people that, that do that and are very successful with that. That's really empowering and awesome. There's also multimillionaires that, uh, you know, have been made by fractional ownership of minimal shares of Microsoft, right? So depends on your bent. I would say this, though, not every team is the same. You know, we think about it that way because we're operators and, right, like we know we're just going to get in and, and get shit done, right? But all these structures do have their own nuances and differences. And every team is a little bit different about what they need and how they structure the pay and comp for their producers versus the incentive comp for their presidents. and you know, how well they reward you, how well they treat you, what their culture is like. And um, it's really to your benefit. You know, I would say all the, like, honestly, almost all the money is going to be just about equal. Um, the money's kind of the money. Your business performance is what it is, especially when you benchmark it against some of these other larger entities. And if you're ever considering joining a group, I think it's, you know, I think it's imperative to assess the culture more than anything to make sure that you're a right fit. Because if you're not, you're going to have the, like, your life's going to be terrible. Um, just to be honest with you. Yeah. So, um, and, and that is one of the main reasons why I'm glad I'm not having that conversation for a long time. Even if we did, you know, allow ourselves to be acquired, 
it is at least a couple of years from now at an absolute minimum, probably longer than that. Cause I mean, I don't see the market shifting in any huge way. You know, the P, the multiples might come back to earth a little bit, but uh, it's going to be this way for a long time. I agree with you. The, the consolidation I think is probably not going anywhere. I agree with you. Yeah. We're, we're catching a wave, man. It's uh, our industry is transforming in front of our eyes and um, it's going to be an interesting three to five years. That's for sure. No, I agree. I'm going to pivot real quick and ask you, I don't think this is a hard pivot because of what you're talking about uh, in, in Nashville at the Innovation 22 conference. Uh, why don't you, you walk us through what you've got planned there? Uh, by all means, feel free to hold some cards to your chest because I imagine you've got some some great stuff planned for the people that are there in person uh, in Nashville. But you know, a large percentage of the audience won't be in Nashville. And uh, anything you feel comfortable talking about from your keynote or in, any you know tips and tricks you want to share, I, I'm all all ears for that. Uh, yeah, so um, just joining High Street and going through the sale process, and the evaluation process, working with the investment bankers, I learned a lot. And um, I just felt like when I was asked to speak that that would be something that I could give that would be of value to the IOA members would be just my journey and the things that I learned about how to create value for your business, right? So there's little things that you can do that are going to drive your valuation. And you know, it doesn't mean that you're selling. It doesn't mean that, you know, this has nothing to do with that. I think that, you know, valuing your business appropriately is really critical for scaling it because if you're going to eventually push out stock options and bonuses to key staff and employees or potentially new partners, um, I think it's just really important that you value it correctly so that you have a really good handle of, of what you have. And so um, the intention of the keynote is just to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and share some of my experiences on things that we did in order to drive our valuation up to maximize our opportunities when it was time for us to to go to market. No, fantastic. No, I, I really look forward to hearing that in Nashville. Uh, anything you want to share from that list, uh, maybe one or two best practices uh, on how to increase your uh, valuation for our listeners? Yeah. So I think uh, one of them that's really kind of interesting to me uh, is life insurance sales. I was always told that like, you know, your life insurance segment needs to be discounted off your valuation. That's totally not true. Um, selling life insurance and deploying that cross-sell within your agency can drive meaningful revenue and quickly appreciate your value um, so that when you do go to market, you might have a, a little bit, you know, juicier multiple potentially. Um, other things that uh, I consider too were like contingencies. Um, I think there's some misinformation around contingency valuation, how that affects your multiple how that affects your, you know, your EBITDA and and ultimately what uh, the value of your business is based off of. We're going to talk a little bit about EBITDA and how you know those numbers are driven and really what that means pro forma against actual and um, you know just so people can begin to conceptualize. I think sometimes we undervalue ourselves. I know that was my experience. Um, I didn't understand. I didn't fully understand um, the value of our asset and you know some of the things that ultimately got um, got us across the finish line, frankly. So I'm um, hoping to share some of those things, uh, just those very tactical, practical guidelines that we did um, in or, or wish we would have done <laughs> in order to uh, um, make the most of it. No, that is fantastic, man. I, I could not be more excited, just given the timing of all of this, as I'm starting to try to understand for for our purposes, you know, long term strategic planning, 
Now, if we can get started years in advance uh, to move the ball in the right direction so that things that happen a long time from now are drawing from, you know, collateral benefits, the things that we've set in motion way in the past. Uh, that is really exciting. I think also uh, as we get ready to land the plan, anything that you wanted us to talk about, we haven't covered yet. Well, I was just going to say towards that end too. Like, I think everybody wants to acquire, and so valuing the business that you're going to acquire correctly and understanding like those value drivers that other people may be looking at is also just a real time actionable way that it's not like you're selling your business because there's a there the wealth transfer is happening right. We have these sixty some year olds that are getting out of the business and looking for somebody to perpetuate their business to a lot of times money's the like third or fourth or fifth thing in the, in their consideration list, right? Like they're looking for guys obviously that know their stuff and can, you know, do well by their staff, do well by their customer base, support their carrier initiatives and keep their reputations in their communities. And those are things that, you know, the big money struggles to do sometimes. And I think it's just real world practical, like blocking and tackling for folks that are trying to grow their business. They know, they see opportunities in their marketplace, other agencies that they want to acquire, but maybe they you know, haven't scratched the surface of, of that landscape before. I've done 50 some transactions in my career. And so most of those were before we joined our, our private equity group. And I think that that's kind of hopefully the, the information I can bring to these guys that'll you know, help them grow their businesses. So that when they are ready for an exit, They've yep. also got a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak, with with a bigger business. So what I'm hearing you say is whether you're on the buy side or the sell side, you're going to get a lot of tactical information there. I'm a buy side guy, right? So that's the way that I think. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the skew on probably how we'll, we'll drive most of the conversation is what to look for and pitfalls awesome. and some of that stuff. So, yeah. Well, I need to be mindful of the fact that a lot of folks listening won't have the privilege of hearing you in Nashville. So I'm going to let that uh, that one rest for now. Anything you want to talk about before we land this plane and get you back to your afternoon, Jacob? Uh, no, man. I mean, I'm uh, I don't think so. Um, grateful to be able to share and and meet you and, yeah. uh, you know, talk a little bit about our business and what we're doing. That's always fun for me. And um, hopefully it was meaningful to your audience. We haven't really gone too far into M&A. We haven't talked valuation. We haven't talked, you know, when when people hear me say the difference between actual EBITDA and pro forma EBITDA, it's like, what? <laughs> what are we doing? We haven't gone here yet. Now, he's going straight from, you know, addition and subtraction to long form geometry without anything in the middle. So uh, for those of you that uh, are where I was about a year and a half ago, uh, lacking in some basic financial literacy, like entrepreneurial financial literacy, I should say. Uh, I think this is a good opportunity to, you know, brush up on your basic understanding. I didn't know much about any of this stuff until we started engaging uh, with the fractional CFO, and I had to confess to them my basic lack of understanding of entrepreneurial financing uh, stuff. I didn't know what pro forma EBITDA was. Uh, I didn't I understand how to calculate cost of goods sold, customer acquisition costs, and all these other really, really important metrics. Uh, as you become less of an insurance agent and more of a business owner, those kinds of deficiencies in, in our basic skill sets as in, you know, professionals, they get exposed. And those, those, uh, those deficiencies can cost you a lot of money uh, if you're not careful. So um, Jake Neighbors, thank you so much for being here. Uh, on on this conversation, I personally thought this was fascinating. I really appreciate your perspective 
I look forward to seeing you in Nashville. And folks, that is the end of uh, another episode here. Uh, Jacob, real quick, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if somebody wants to learn more about uh, Simmons Agency or High Street, what's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, you can find me on the High Street website, hsip.com. Uh, my email is jneighbors at simmons-partners.com. Yeah, man, hit me on Facebook. Facebook, honestly, is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. So would love to, yeah, love to help and support any other questions that might come out of this conversation. So um, it was an honor no, to be I here, man. I imagine there you. might be some. Now, we'll go ahead and put that basic contact information in the show notes, folks, if you want to reach out to Jacob about uh, just more in-depth conversation about anything that uh, we've discussed here. Uh, certainly, if you want to hear more about High Street and what they uh, are up to in the marketplace, I know Jacob will be happy to talk with you about that. And that is it for this episode. Uh, that's a wrap. Make it a great day, boys and girls. And we'll catch you next time on the Agency Freedom Podcast. Y'all take care. Thanks for listening to the Agency Freedom Podcast. Please subscribe to AFP on your favorite platform to get automatic updates with every new episode and help other people find us. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and tell the world what you like best. Most importantly, please share AFP with someone you know who is still in captivity. They'll thank you later. Visit our website at agencyfreedom.com to get access to exclusive content and announcements. Join our community on Facebook by typing in Agency Freedom in the search bar. Send your questions, comments, guest recommendations, and favorite grilling recipes to us at podcast at agencyfreedom.com. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. Until next time, let's go.